praise and proclaim this great God because he has proven himself in what he has created. I regularly pray for WSBC and I pray also for the uh, leadership. I understand some uh, changes are going on and um, I certainly want you to uh, be encouraged uh, that uh, the Lord is uh, with you um, in the work that you are doing and, and especially when those times where we have to face the, the world, the flesh and the devil um, that wants to impede the advancement of, of the kingdom. A couple of years ago, I had a wonderful opportunity to hold a, a tutoring session with a recognized businessman here in Shanghai. Uh, he knew that I, uh, that I teach philosophy, and in a roundabout way, he got into contact with me, and he says, would you do private tutorings with me in particularly Western philosophy. Now, I normally ask my students uh, at the university, why are you taking my class? Why are you taking this particular class? And so I asked uh, my new friend, his name's Andy. I says, Andy, why are, you, why are you interested in taking this class? Why are you interested in studying philosophy? We got to a comfortable level where I could actually, we could actually get into our lives together and I knew he made a lot of money. Uh, and I said, Andy, you make a lot of money. And he said very soberly, he said, I make a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> but then I said, I said, so what do you need a, a class like this? Why do we need to spend time talking about or meditating on philosophy? Well, actually, I, I asked him before, I said, you know, do you need a class like this? You have enough money, doesn't that satisfy you? And that's when he broke out in, into laughter. Uh, he started laughing and, and says, not at all, it doesn't satisfy me at all. And so then I said, why do you want to take this class? He says, because I don't know who I am and I don't know my purpose. Now that's very interesting. Philosophers throughout time have maintained this close relationship uh, between knowing self and knowing your purpose uh, in life. Now this man was a little bit uh, older, he was, he's older than, uh, than, than I am, and I'm tremendously young. Um, and so I ask my students, you know, what is your purpose? What is your end in life? Now normally a student, student say, get a job, make a lot of money. And I will tell them that making a lot of money uh, will not satisfy your deep, the deep needs uh, of life. And of course they don't, they don't believe me. And I can give them example after example where human beings have pursued three things that are enticing and tempting. Wealth, honor and glory, or fame, and power. Those are the three things that humans have pursued throughout life. But every time they're pursued, they don't pay off. Okay? Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
is a summary of the teachings of the Bible. It was written in England uh, in the 1640s. It's used by uh, Reformed Presbyterians. Uh, it was adapted by Reformed Presbyterians, uh, sorry, Reformed Baptists in uh, the same century, 16, later part of the 1600s. And the Westminster Confession, what's attached to that summary of Christian doctrine uh, is um, a shorter catechism and a larger, larger catechism. Catechism simply means instruction, okay, teaching or instruction. Shorter catechism and a larger catechism. It's great for training um, uh, young children, and you can begin uh, very young. Now, both, uh, both catechisms begin with a question that is fundamental to human existence. What is the chief end of man? And we can reword that to say, what is the primary purpose in this life of human beings? What is your particular end? What is your particular purpose uh, in life? Now, some of you may know the answer. I'm not going to uh, put anyone uh, on the spot. But the answer to that question is the chief end of man or humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I don't know, you, may, you might be like me. Uh, I tend to drive a wedge between glorifying God and enjoying him. Maybe it's because I come from a sort of Calvinist uh, tradition, right? And we're totally depraved. <laughs> So there's no enjoyment on my part. I'll try to do the glory part, but no enjoyment, right? So he lives kind of an ascetic life. That's not really biblically justified. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever must go together, right? So think about it differently. When you glorify God, you will have joy. You will have enjoyment. That's not health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We're going to face some troubles in life, but like the psalmist says early in the book of Psalms, if we have made God's law our delight, if we make God our delight, what can the wicked do to us? And that's where our joy, uh, that's where our joy is. Now, Psalm 104 gives us insight into the, the purpose of life. Namely, to give glory to God, which in turn provides us the joy that we as humans so crave. But it also, and this is what we're going to focus on today, it also addresses why we should give glory to God. Glorify God and enjoy Him. Why should I even do that? The how of how to, of how to do that. Um, uh, may come in today's uh, exhortation, but that may, we may need to save that for a different um, a discussion. Well, here's why. We're to glorify God because of his marvelous work, or works, as creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all of life. And let me reformat this into our main idea for today, if you want to write this down in your notes. We praise and proclaim this great God because he has proven himself 
in what he has created. We praise and proclaim this great God because he has proven himself in what he has created. And let me use, you, you can hear the pattern. Uh, let me use those three words that, that begin with the letter P. Praise, proven, and proclaimed. Uh, just as sort of guide points in, in my outline for today. Praise, we praise his name for his majesty and works and creation. Number two, proven, the psalmist acknowledges this one and absolute God. And number three, proclaimed, we not only say hallelujah, we give praise to his existence and his work, but we can't contain it. That is, we proclaim it to the world. And that includes, and part of that proclamation includes that of the gospel. So let's read uh, Psalm 104 right now. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on his foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs, springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides, uh, beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, your water, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable living things, both small and great. There goes the ships in Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. 
These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So may the Lord, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So let's look at, pretty clear, that there's a lot of praising here. So let's, let's make that our first point, praise. The psalmist begins with deep self-reflection about the magnificence of God, praising God for his marvelous creation. And we know that uh, God, uh, we know God and glorify God from the things that are made. Creation communicates the Creator. And we praise Him not only for what He creates, but how He does so. So let's survey the passage in chunks here. Let's go quickly um, in chunks. Afterwards, after I do that, what I'd like to what I'd like you to do is to just sort of quickly meditate in Psalm 104. Get the, get the flow of it, get the feel of it. This is a work of art. Um, as a kind of recasting or a retelling of the original creation story in Genesis 1. Psalm 104 is a retelling of uh, Genesis 1. It's, of course, it's not a one-to-one -one matchup in terms of the days of creation. Uh, understand that. And, and beside that, I'm not convinced that we need to sort of restrict our reading of Genesis 1 to a, uh, a very rigid uh, timeline. Right. Okay, so verse 1, God is uh, pictured with splendor and majesty. This is related to the term glory, Hebrew kabod. Verses 2 through 4, God wraps or clothes, clothes himself in light. Light is the opposite of darkness, which is often associated with uh, evil. Light illuminates, it dazzles, it gives sight to those who can't see. And uh, we can also think of the light as the emanation of the sun, okay, which also gives light. Heaven is a tent which God dwells, spreads out, in which God dwells. And there's also this idea that the heavens contain massive amounts of water. This was an ancient uh, idea that confirmed by the rain, the upper realm of the heavens. We also have the storm god imagery in the way that God rides the clouds, right? So I want you to really think, picture these images uh, in, your, in your mind. Verses five through nine, we move from creation and God's presence in the heavens uh, to God's creation on earth and the formation of the boundaries of the creation. Verses 10 through 18, God controls the chaos of the waters and sets a boundary for them and then manages them for the benefit of his creatures. 
providing water needed for animals to survive. And note, it's not just bare necessities. You know, we've got the grass that grows for the cattle, the plants for human consumption, but there's more. These plants produce wine, oil, bread. Grapes are good, but wine is really good. Olives are good in terms of uh, creation. Olives are good. Olive oil is much better. Right? That's really good. Uh, wheat is good, but bread is really good. Right? So this suggests that these are not just bare necessities that, that God gives to us. He gives, us, gives to us richly so that humans will be able to thrive. Verses 14 through 15, we have within that 10, 10 through 18, and, and, and also presupposing the wine, the oil, and the bread, because these take work to produce. These uh, take work uh, uh, to make. It's also, it also presupposes humanity. Humans are there. So we see the heavens, the earth, the waters, and then the creation of humanity. Verses 19 through 23, here the psalmist recalls God's act on the fourth day of creation when he made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. During the night, under the light of the moon, the wild animals, in particular lions, are awakened and they seek their prey. But when the sun rises, they go to the dens to rest while humans begin their work in order to provide for their own sustenance. What the psalmist is celebrating is a well-ordered and rhythmic life. So we've got boundaries set by God and his word, and then a well-ordered rhythm. Verses 20 through, 24 through 20, uh, 26, creation is not chaotic or random, but fashioned through God's wisdom. The rhythm of creation and the borders of creation should remind us that God creates in wisdom. And a central feature of wisdom from uh, a scripture is balance and harmony. Balance and harmony in word and in deed. What you say, what you do, should come up against a, 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 an, opposite, an opposite reaction, maybe, which then creates a zone of harmony and balance between two parts. Right? Think about this the next time you, you go to the beach. My family and I are going to be going to the beach very soon. Um, and every time I go to the beach, I see the waves crashing on the, on the beach. Now, you can't draw a line on the beach, but you know that there's this border, this, this wisdom border uh, uh, that, um, that is put in place by God. The poet also here celebrates the abundance of life on the earth, in particular, the sea, which is filled with a variety of creatures, all kinds of fish, small and large, each taken care of by, by God. Verses 23 through 27 through 30, all of creation is completely dependent on God for life and sustenance. We have life when he opens his hand to give us what we need, and we die when he hides his face. 
And I think that, that language is extreme and intentional. God, through His Spirit, also creates new life. Again, describing the rhythm of God's creation. Genesis speaks of God's breath. The psalmist here of God's Spirit. And, of course, he may be alluding to Genesis 2 and the creation of the first human from the dust and God's breath giving life. Verse 31 to 32, God creates, but he continues that creation in the work of providence. The doctrine of providence is that God upholds, sustains, and rules over that creation. The creation enjoys life because of God's provision. The psalmist expresses his wish that God's glory and his enjoyment will last forever. Hence the reason why he praises him here. He extols God's power by noting that the very earth trembles and the mountains, the symbol of stability, smoke when God merely looks at them. And then finally, verses 33 through 35, this poem began with a self-exhortation to worship, and it ends in the same way, with a hallelujah, praise the Lord, doing so from his very core, his heart. And the psalmist intends to express this, not just for himself, not just at one particular moment, but all of life, everywhere, in his life at all times. And noting in an almost passing thought that sinners will be eradicated. Now perhaps this, uh, this quick note about sinners suggests the short life of the wicked. That's not going to last long. And so he puts it in the very prose of the poem. But he asks that his meditation, as presented in the previous verses, may please God and bring him enjoyment. So let's, let, let's just, you know, put these images together. Try to, try to understand the flow here, right? This all-encompassing image, imagery of God interacting with his creation. We begin with, that, with God and the heavens, to the expanse, to the waters, to the earth, to man and beasts back up to heavens and the earth, back up to, back, back up to God. We begin, begin with God, the expanse going down to the earth, back to the expanses, all the way back to God. God encompasses everything in his um, uh, creation. I have the image of God as both a conductor, someone who's conducting an, an, an orchestra, uh, but also a kind of like a, um, like a general. Um, maybe a general is not, not, not a good idea, but, but maybe like an artist, right? Uh, one of my favorite uh, artists uh, would, would roll out his canvas like a tent, and he would walk on the canvas and put the paint. He would be in the, in the painting um, uh, as, as well. Uh, so I see God as doing something that he's, he's riding, he's clothed, he commands, and he provides. Well, let's, let's move to our, our second uh, point. 
proven. God proves himself. Now, this second point may seem a little bit out of place, but I would suggest that the poem is structured in such a way that it brings out like a 3D image, the one true God. For the, for the ancient world, it was not so much the existence of God or his being that was at issue, so much as which God one should believe in. And you'll notice the lengths that God takes in making himself known as the only true God. He doesn't engage in a, like we do in the modern world, with apologetics, evangelical apologetics, he doesn't engage in a sophisticated or abstract argument about his existence. He actually offers himself in comparison to creation and to other gods. S stick with me. See, we live in a secular age, and we may feel the need always to defend our beliefs in God, and that's fine. But among civilizations in the ancient Near East, including that of Egypt, and I'll get to Egypt in a second, the realities that made up this en the enchanted world of gods, spirits, and demons and forces, that, that was all taken for granted. You have to defend that. Of course, even in a world where the divine was assumed, God still had to remind the world of who he was, the one and only true God. And Psalm 104 shows us how God does that. Okay, what am I getting at? Where am I, where am I going with this? Well, scholars have rightly pointed out the similarities between Psalm 104 and an earlier Egyptian hymn, the hymn of Aten, um, from the time of the pharaoh Akhenaten in the uh, 14th century BC. Akhenaten has been considered the first monotheist, a believer in one God, infamously known for his suppression of traditional Egyptian gods in favor of the exclusionary worship of the sun, specifically the disk, the disk of the sun. And that's where we get the word Aten. Aten means disk, the sun. Now, depending on what your view is in terms of when the Exodus was, was it earlier? Was it later? Right? Um, some people will think that the Hebrews, they got their idea of monotheism from Egypt. Right? Um, more, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more uh, in a second. But, but consider the striking parallels. Let me read just a portion of the hymn of Aten um, while you just sort of uh, meditate on Psalm 104. Here's the hymn of Aten. O soul God, besides whom there is none, how many are your deeds? You made the earth as you wished, you alone, all peoples, herds, and flocks. When you set in western light land, earth is in darkness, as if in death. Every lion comes from its den. When you have dawned, they live. When you set, they die. You set every man in his place. You supply their needs. Everyone has food. The fish in the river dart before you. Your rays are in the midst of the sea. Birds fly from their nests, their wings greeting you. 
He makes waves on the mountains like the sea to drench their fields and their towns. Let's just keep that in mind for a moment. I mean, you could see the parallels in verses 19 through 23 and 24 through 26. And that's not the only imagery that the psalmist, in this case David, borrows from the ancient East. The imagery of the storm god in the beginning in the latter half of verse 3 and into 4. Like the storm god Baal in Ugaritic texts, God rides the clouds, the cloud being his war chariot. Ugaritic texts also describe the sea god, Yom, and his messengers as flames of fire, providing a background to the description of the Lord's messengers, the angels, in verse 4. When the psalmist moves to the creation of the world, it talks about God setting the earth on its foundations and covers it with water, submerged using the language of clothing. I don't know if you noticed that, but the, the mountains are actually under the water until he rebukes the water and then they, they come down. The, uh, this brings up an ancient Near Eastern myth of the cosmic conflict between the earth god Marduk, the creator, and the sea god Yam, or Tiamat, and as they battle things, battle things out in, this, in setting the boundaries. What is more, the Leviathan in Western Semitic mythology is a seven-headed sea monster, later by the Greeks called the uh, many-headed Hydra, which represents e evil. So what are we supposed to make of this? Did the Hebrews take these images? Did they copy? Are there copyright violations on the part of the Hebrews? Uh, some are quick to dismiss the fact that the Old Testament writers borrowing too much from the ancient Near East, and so they don't really have anything unique or special to tell us. Well, I think that charge lacks a bit of sophistication. I think it's a little bit empty as well. I don't know, maybe I'm biased. <laughs> it certainly doesn't have the edge that it, that it hopes for. I say this in a sense because what if we accepted that the writers of the Old Testament, including Psalm 104, knowingly borrowed from the surrounding literature? Is that such a crisis? Artists are borrowing from one another all the time. Writers, filmmakers, uh, painters, musicians. But the psalmist, there's a purpose to what he's doing. And the purpose is to contrast the gods of the ancient Near East, including Egypt, with the god of the Hebrews. This is the ancient method of apologetics, of defending the faith, a proof of God's existence. You see, at the center of it, it's something very subtle. God, in Psalm 104, separates himself from the creation. He is not his creation, as in the case of the hymn of Aten. Do you notice that? Notice how Aten, Aten is creation. The sun disk is God. Verses 3 of the hymn of Aten. 
When you set in Western Lightland, earth is in darkness as if in death. Verse 5, it says, this is really telling, when you have dawned, they live. When you set, they die. God is the sun. God is the creation. But in Psalm 104, we have things like the young lions roar for their prey. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Clearly, a very subtle and, and very beautiful distinction. Right? Where the sun is going to rise, when the sun rises, now I'm separated from the sun. Boy, that tells you something uh, right there. Okay? If we were to explore this further, we would come to realize that when God is confused with his creation, this presents a serious philosophical dilemma, which can't be solved without dividing, drawing a line between the creator and the creation. And let me, let me articulate this dilemma in the form of an argument. Everything in creation is contingent. It is also relationally dependent. We need things, basically, to survive. If God were contingent and dependent on something other than himself to survive for life, then he wouldn't be God. The things that he's dependent on would be higher than him, and that would be, that would be God. So by necessity, God is self-sufficient. How can something, or say it in a question, how can something be both dependent and independent, necessary and contingent? We can't resolve that. We can't resolve that, that problem. Right? So either God is contingent depending on, dependent on other things, which means there would be no God, or God must be independent and self-reliant, right? Hence God. A further contrast with the hymn of Atan is that there's no conflict in creation in, the, in, in Psalm 104. God commands his creation, and guess what? Creation submits. You know, Job 38 provides a similar picture of God placing a boundary on the sea and then declaring to the sea, this is as far as you're going to go. You're not going to go any further. And what does the sea do? Okay. Even the winds and the waves obey his word. There's no conflict, unlike East, uh, Near Eastern mythology. The Leviathan, as we've mentioned already, represents dangerous evils. But here, it's presented as God's creature, which enjoys its God-given habitat. Again, no conflict, or very little conflict. And we should keep in mind that the existence of an actual Leviathan is not really the issue here, right? But rather the submission of creation, great and small. He listens and, and heeds the voice of God. This God's different. Maybe we should start paying attention to this God. We should stop and listen. Well, the praises that we express through our lives and, and, and seeing how God has shown himself to be the only unique God should then lead us 
to proclaim to the world the greatness of God. That's our third and final point. The imagery of the Creator is not one of, a, of an entity, whether personal or impersonal, who creates the world and then leaves, a distant uh, God. Rather, he's fully interacting with his creation, as we've already said, clothing, uh, writing, speaking, providing. There is no hint in Scripture that at one point God creates and then he retreats. Now, of course, the Bible does speak of God's transcendence. He's so far above in the heavens. He's so beyond our comprehension, um, even our visual experience. He has so much glory. He dwells in unapproachable light, the imperium, as they uh, called it in the Middle Ages. Yet, at the same time, God is very relationally close, very near to us. And we could see this in, uh, for instance, Psalm 19, which uses two specific names for God, Elohim, the glorious, majestic, far above God, and Jehovah, or Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the intimate God that we have. In theology, we speak uh, about God's transcendence, but also his imminence, right? His far removal from creation, but yet his involvement in a creation. And I don't think we should think of God's transcendence and imminence as a kind of sort of ladder to him, or a sort, of, sort of a linear plane, but more think about it as, uh, think of the cosmos as a sphere, where God is in and through the entirety of his creation without being reduced to that creation. That, of course, would lead us to pantheism. Right? All, is, all is God. But this should move us to praise uh, God. By praising him, we don't just mean proclaiming in terms of describing reality. We're talking about a proclamation that doesn't return void, a proclamation by way of word that is inescapably transformative. Look, if you are an unbeliever here today, you will leave this room after hearing these words, either hardened in your opposition to God, suppressing the truth that you know already, or you will be drawn to him by his Spirit, by God's Spirit, and he will renew the face of the ground, and that's you. Now, Psalm 104 encapsulates the entirety of the biblical story, from creation to consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. First, the entire book of Psalms has the same authority as the Old Testament books. Uh, 4th century Christian bishop uh, Basil of Caesarea said that the Psalms were a compendium of all theology. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little book and the summary of the Old Testament, but the book of Psalms, the summary of the entire scriptures. And in terms of its authority, the entire book of Psalms, what we have uh, right now, is on the same level as the first five books of the Old Testament. 
You see, there are five books that make up the Psalter, what we know as the Psalter. And Psalm 104 is part of the five books. It's situated towards the end of book four of the entire Psalm book. Why five books? Why organize five books of Psalms? Well, it mirrors the same as the Pentateuch, right? Uh, which then suggests that the Psalms has the same authority as the Torah. Well, what about the New Testament? Uh, we're in the New Testament age, right? So we don't have to pay attention to the Old Testament. Eh, not so fast. Remember, the Pentateuch is a tutor to Christ. Christ is the completion of the Old Testament that includes the Psalms. Christ reminds his listeners, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is saying that all Scripture, all the Scriptures, I should say, refer to him, not just a handful of passages. One contemporary theologian says it this way, the Psalter as a whole has Jesus Christ in view, and this should be the normative way of interpreting the Psalms. Christ turns the Psalms into the new songs. The new song that the Psalms announce, sing a new song to the Lord. Christ completed and made those new songs, made them new. Hebrews 1.8 recalls, actually cites Psalm 102, but also connects it to Psalm 104. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, etc. So Psalm 104 begins with God clothed in light, this sun imagery. Oh, sure, it's borrowed. That's fine. And riding on the clouds, the storm imagery. The opening of John's gospel speaks of Jesus as the Word who was with God, and through him all things were made. Without, without him, nothing was made that was made. When God covers his face, creation dies, etc. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The one who said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, also spoke of appearing on a cloud at the end of time, rescuing his people and bringing judgment on those who resist him. And in the new Jerusalem, there is no need for the sun or the moon, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. It's like kind of a tongue twister. The Lamb is its lamp. There will be no more night. They will, not, they will not need the light or lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is Revelations 21 and 22. The light of the sun the light of God's glory, clothed in this light, the light of the good news, brings heaven and earth together and transforms us, returning us to our proper 
end toward the Creator. Christ comes down from heaven to the earth, bringing heaven and earth down together in order to bring us back to God. Think of Psalm 104, begins with the heavens, goes down to the earth, back up to the Creator. Christ comes down to the earth, does his work, provides abundantly for all of humanity, and then goes back up to the Father and brings us back uh, to the Father. Wonderful parallel with Psalm uh, 104. If today you wish to be consumed by this light, then recognize your guilt before God, confess your sins, and rest and trust in the work of Christ alone for salvation. You will then know a great God who will renew your life, recreate you, sustain you, and will give you that joy that will last forever. Think about that for a moment as I offer just a brief uh, conclusion. You thought that was the conclusion. I tricked you. Poetry, like the Psalms, like Psalm 104, poetry can really penetrate the soul. It can communicate profound truths. I, I kind of think poetry really accents who we are made in the image of God. We're not machines. We're not animals. We are a little lower than the angels, so we have an honorific status, and we create as well. And poetry gets us into the world of the infinite. I like these lines from uh, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Creation out of nothing, bringing heaven and earth together. The content and structure of Psalm 104 reflects God's dynamic interaction with the creation. Out of airy nothing, he has given shape to the cosmos. More than just a glance from heaven to earth, as Shakespeare said, God swirls them together, establishing his magnificence and causing us to praise and proclaim that great work. This is the reason why we glorify God. So let's do that. Let's glorify God so that we truly can enjoy him forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you that you, you are clothed in, in light. You, you ride the clouds and your voice makes the earth tremble. You, by your voice, the cedars of Lebanon are split in half. You make the desert of Kadesh, Kadesh to shake. The, the deer twists in labor by your, by your word. Lord, by your word you have done something extraordinary, something amazing. By your word, you've created the world. But by your, world, by your word, Lord, you've done even 
something more extraordinary. You've turned sinners into saints. Because of that embodied word, embodied, embodied light, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where can we go? Father God, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you've brought down your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit, verse 30 in, in uh, Psalm 104. You send your Spirit to renew the face of the ground. So, Spirit, you renew us. You bring us to Christ. You guide us in truth. Convict us of sin. But you glorify Christ uh, in our lives. And so we give you praise, Lord God, and we give you praise, uh, Lord Jesus, for the work that you've uh, done for us. We pray, Lord, that your, your light would penetrate those who may not know you here, those who want to know themselves, those who want to know their purpose, their, their end uh, in life. Enlighten us, Lord, illuminate us, and transform us so that we could be new creations in you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.